Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko na ipurangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance aho. Later on we're going to take a look at the science of soap and discover from a virus expert and a chemist why soap is such a good coronavirus buster. But first, the viral pandemic COVID-19 has our full attention at the moment as we watch a soaring infection rate and growing number of fatalities around the world. But it's just one of a number of killers that we live with, and one of the most serious, which tends to get worse in winter, is air pollution. The World Health Organization says that the combined effects of ambient or outdoor air pollution, as well as indoor household air pollution, cause about 7 million premature deaths globally every year. That's because air pollution is a major factor in stroke, heart disease, lung cancer and chronic respiratory diseases. More than 90% of the world's population lives in places where air quality levels exceed World Health Organization limits. So what's air quality like in New Zealand? Well, to find out more, I'm off to GNS Science at Gracefield in the Hutt Valley to meet atmospheric chemist Perry Davy and physicist Bill Trompetta. Generally in New Zealand we have nice clean air, or at least we perceive that have nice clean uh, air in New Zealand, but that's not always the case. So what we are interested in is finding out what air pollution is in the air and what it's made out of. You're at GNS Science and we'd just better explain why you're doing air quality, because GNS Science I think of rocks and earth and the ground. At GNS we have accelerator-based techniques for analysing composition and that's why we're involved in the air side of things. We're looking at the, the composition of the atmosphere. So there's gases in our atmosphere, but there's also particulate matter, is that right? That's right, yeah, fine particles. And that's probably responsible for most of the health effects in New Zealand and overseas from air pollution. So what's in the air around us? Obviously we can't see it, and you're going to explain to me later how you measure it, but uh, what's going on in the air today? Well, today it's relatively clean and clear. <laughs> But there are particles there, and there might be natural sources, sea salt, um, soil, or with that truck arriving, diesel particulates. Yeah. So let's just fixate on that truck since it's stopped and is idling there nicely for us. So um, let's just jump to what that truck is giving us in the way of particulate matter, what's coming out of its tailpipe. Most of the particles produced by combustion engines are, are very fine soot. And those particles can't see, but they are the particles that penetrate deep into your lungs and enter your bloodstream. So what size particles are you talking about? We're talking in, down to the nanometer scale. And so the smaller it is, the bigger a problem it is? Generally, yeah. Smaller it is, the more of them there are, and the more of the uh, impact on your body. What are the consequences? What is the impact? Well, ultimately death. <laughs> but there's plenty of other health effects respiratory disease, um, heart attack, stroke. How many people a year die from air pollution? 
Well, that's the tricky thing, because it's very hard to point out someone in the street who's just died from air pollution, but we can do epidemiological studies, and it's been shown that in the order of 1,000, 2,000 people per year die from air pollution causes. Just in in New Zealand? Yeah. Worldwide, it's about 7 million. It's the fifth leading cause of death in the world. But there's also other health effects or lost impairment, people not feeling so well, having respiratory illnesses, so hospital emissions, but also lost productivity, people not feeling quite so sharp because they are being impaired by the particles that they're breathing in and those health effects from those. What are some of the natural particles that we've got in the air then at the moment? Well, we always live really close to ocean here in New Zealand, so there's always a lot of ocean uh, particulate from the ocean and sea salt, and there's also often wind-blown soil that might come from uh, trucks and motor vehicles that are generating road dust, but also wind-blown soil from from surrounding area as well. So I can actually envisage both of those at my house because, you know, after a few days of wind, my windows are covered with salt, basically, and then my house is painted white, and every so often I go outside and realise that it's turning a shade of grey from stuff that's just blown around and stuck on the house. Exactly, (laughs) yep. Houses near busy roads turn blacker faster and that's because of the particles emitted by vehicles and road dust. So you've been doing studies of air quality around New Zealand. There must be differences between, say, central city and a suburb. Oh, definitely, yeah. What's going on in a place like Queen Street? Because I know you're monitoring there. Yeah, in more dense urban street canyons, there's lots of motor vehicle activity, so that's producing a higher level air pollution. But you head out to the suburbs, what starts happening? Uh, You're getting away from that dense traffic and, and you're getting dispersion of the of the air pollution, so it's um, becoming less concentrated. Yes, we've monitored in quite a number of sites, and most of our air pollution problems occur during the winter. That's because it's colder and calmer, and people are using wood fires to heat their homes, so that produces a lot of smoke in the urban area. If you live in a valley where there might be entrapment of the particles, then particles can build up overnight as well, so evening time can often be a, a not-so-good time for air pollution. So what are you detecting in winter? We measure the absolute concentration but we also measure the composition so from those fires we're also picking up things like arsenic and lead and we think that the arsenic is associated with burning copper chrome arsenate treated timber and the lead is from burning old painted timber anything um, painted before 1970s would have lead paint in it you can assume i'm amazed that people are burning that much treated timber we don't think it takes that much because it's such a high concentration in the wood it doesn't take that much to generate a level in the atmosphere that we can pick up because we're picking up stuff that's billionths of a gram in concentration. Still enough, high enough to exceed the air quality guidelines. So. so who is actually responsible for air quality in New Zealand? It's actually the regional councils and this work that we do is, is in conjunction with them. So they, they collect the filters and then we analyse the composition and, and concentrations on their behalf. And it's them that are actually trying to implement policies and to work with the community to improve the air quality around New Zealand. Our work is to help the regional councils understand the sources and how much those sources are contributing to overall air pollution and then the regional councils can then manage accordingly. Obviously in the last few months one of the big air quality issues that's been around is the fires in Australia and we've been seeing quite a lot of smoke haze coming across the Tasman from there. So, apart from that visual effect, would it actually have had an impact on the, the quality of the air that we were breathing here? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. We've, we've just finished a, um, some work for 
Auckland Council because they had an exceedance of their particulate matter standard in December and we were working out where that came from and what it was composed of and uh, yes, the bushfires had some influence but there's also been a lot of dust storms in Australia over the same, same time period generated by the same meteorological conditions so it looks like the exceedance in Auckland was, was primarily due to, due to that uh, crustal matter component so desert dust, yeah now, there is, the, of course, the question of whether the air quality is better inside or outside. So I might use that as our cue to actually let's go inside and let's go to the lab and we can both see where you work and how you do what you do and then we can chat about air quality on the way. Cool. Sounds good. Here we go. So we've stepped into an air-conditioned, cool corridor. Uh, what do you reckon the air quality's like in here? Well... The air quality we know from our measurements is very similar to what's happening outside in terms of the smaller particles. The larger particles, somewhat less in concentration, but we know that the very fine particles occur inside with the same concentration as outdoors. And is that worse in old houses that are leakier and draftier? To a certain extent, because the thing is that even the new houses, which have a higher air tightness, they still have to be ventilated from the outside. Um, And it's interesting that in Australia, the advice that they're actually giving to the Australians is to stay inside while the bushfires are happening, and particularly to maybe go to a a shopping centre or a a building which has got a a filtered air intake. So there there is an opportunity to have the very fine particles uh, to be filtered out of the air, and so they they might be better protected. Oh, okay. If in doubt, go shopping. Yes, definitely. (laughs) There's some air quality advice, people. So where have we come to? We have come to uh, the area where we have our particle accelerator, and this is the control room where we control the experiments or the measurements that we have for the individual filters. It's full of machines that look quite complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, the accelerator was actually installed here uh, in the early 1960s, but it's been updated all, all over that, that time, so it's still very functional and works well for us. So you mentioned outdoors that you collect filters, so you're basically filtering the air at a site and then you're bringing those filters back here to analyse? Yeah, that's right. So we put them in front of the beam from the accelerator and we use that particle beam to give us the uh, elemental concentrations in those filters. Can you explain that a bit more to me? The particle beam, as it impacts onto the air pollution particles, there's all sorts of interactions that happen, like including X-rays, gamma rays, and scattered particles. And we can use each of those interactions to determine the composition, the elemental composition, and the concentration of each of those elements on the filter. And then Perry, he's the chemist, he does uh, source apportionment on those concentrations and turns those, those concentrations into what the sources are. Yeah, that's right. So from that, from that data, we can, we can then provide the advice to the regional councils of what the biggest bang for their buck in terms of policy improvements for air quality. So are we seeing any improvements in air quality? Let's just go back to that outside air quality again. Uh, we are, actually, yeah. We have a long-term study with Auckland Council that's been going for about 14 years now, and uh, we can see from that long-term data that particles from motor vehicles, for instance, is coming down from tailpipe emissions. That's due to engine technology improvements, 
and emission improvements, tailpipe improvements of cars, so that, that's really improved over the, over the last 10 years. And that's despite the fact that the number of vehicles is going up? That's right, yeah. So even though the number of vehicles in New Zealand still continues to rise, we're almost at one light-duty vehicle for every man, woman and child at the moment. But we can see it starting to plateau now as that number of vehicles starts to outweigh those um, technology improvements. But most of that improvement is coming for the diesel vehicles rather than the petrol ones? That's right. Petrol vehicles don't actually produce very many particles because of the type of um, combustion engine they are. They produce gases, of course, but that's not something that you're measuring. No, they do produce gases. I mean, all the, all these, all the vehicles, anything using fossil fuel is producing carbon dioxide, and that's the, the main contributor to climate change. You'd hope then that there'd be a, a similar increase in air quality in the inside of houses, particularly those that are next to busy roads, for example. Well, that's right. So even though the combustion particulates are, are, are decreasing, we still get the, the dust the road dust component that are coming from the roads, as well as the combustion particles that are still being made, uh, are still making their way in, indoors. So what's on that road dust? Basically whatever's landed on the road from the tailpipe and whatever's produced from the abrasion of wheels and the road surface and brakes. So we see things like copper and zinc and antimony and barium as part of that mix sounds revolting. <laughs> it doesn't sound very healthy. And the thing about the road dust component, that is increasing in line with the increase in traffic volume. Well, let's just have a theoretical walk around a house. So this morning I got up, I started off obviously in my bedroom. So what do we know about air quality inside New Zealand houses, in particular inside bedrooms? Well, it's interesting that you mention a bedroom first because it really depends on whether you slept with your door shut or open during the evening. If you closed your bedroom door and your air in your bedroom is relatively airtight, then the CO2 levels could have uh, climbed quite substantially during the evening because you're breathing into a, a closed volume. And we know from a few studies, or a few, we've done a handful of home studies, that the, the CO2 concentrations can build up to over 3,000 parts per million. It would affect people's cognitive ability at those high levels. If you're waking up groggy in the morning, then you may, you may need to think about opening your window <laughs> rather than getting more sleep. <laughs> oh, interesting. And so then I go from the bedroom, I go via the bathroom. That's obviously just going to be hot and steamy from, the, from having a shower. Correct. Um, I arrive in my kitchen. What's the story with air quality in kitchens? So from our study and also what studies overseas, it's been shown that the largest contribution inside a home is actually from the kitchen. Particularly if you're frying up, if you're doing a fry up for breakfast, then that's going to be really high uh, particle concentrations, not only in your kitchen but the rest of your house as well. A lot higher than what we're seeing outdoor concentrations. So the kitchen's the most dangerous place when it comes to air quality? In terms of air quality, that's correct. So your advice, just as much ventilation as you can have? For sure. Turn on the extractor fan and maybe even open a window as well, particularly on the stovetop. And what about in the lounge? In the lounge, we have seen from our study that dust is re-entrained when people are moving around a house. We've seen that in some of the school studies that we've done as well inside a few of the classrooms, that when you've got people inside a room, that the soil that's uh, on a carpet or on a, on a floor surface can be re-entrained by the occupants. So you do get dust or soil components in the air quality inside a lounge or any room. Yeah. Is vacuuming or sweeping a good idea? 
Well, uh, you want to keep the dust levels or soil levels uh, to a minimum on a carpet. So, so shoes off at the door? Oh, that would help. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, we would like to do a study, actually, to show that. Yeah, we haven't done that yet. You mentioned their classrooms and this, this idea that kids running around are stirring up a lot of dirt within the classroom. What other things in classrooms have you looked at? What other things have you measured? Well, for classrooms, we saw that there was infiltration from outdoors, outdoors sources. So the source from within the classroom was primarily just soil that's been entrained into the classroom from people's footwear. And then it was infiltration from outside. So the schools that were near a busy road, they had a high level of vehicle particulates inside their classroom. And then if we saw sea salt inside the classroom. We saw soil as well that was associated with the outdoor activities as well. Is anybody responsible for actually measuring the indoor air quality? That's a very good question. Indoor air quality, no. Uh, We mentioned before that the regional councils are responsible for outdoor air quality, but there's no government department has a mandate to be responsible for indoor air quality or to promote good messages about how we should keep a good air quality inside our homes or buildings or workplaces. There is a group, not only from us from GNS, but also from Otago University, Massey, and brands as well that are doing, trying to do some science around this. But what we need is support from a government department to, to really bring home that message more strongly. From the information that you've so far gathered from classrooms, what would your advice be for a, for a teacher in a classroom for optimising the air quality? Uh, certainly to, to ventilate because CO2 levels can build up in a classroom as well. Uh, the Ministry of Education is looking to, to monitor CO2 levels in a classroom, so that's great. But also ventilation not only reduces the CO2 levels, but will also reduce any particles, uh, soil particles or, or entrainment from the kids' activity within the classroom as well. So ventilation could help the kids' cognitive ability, yes. And I imagine ventilation might be something that you'd want to think very carefully about if you actually have a modern, well-sealed home. You're exactly, because if your uh, home or your classroom is well sealed, you're, gonna not be, you're not going to have that natural ventilation that would happen in a draftier house or classroom. Well, if this is good ammunition for me for opening the, all the doors and windows every morning for a little while. <laughs> yes, that's the message, yes. So I think one of the things that's surprised me most in this conversation is that thing about people burning treated and painted wood. That, that would seem like a no-brainer, but clearly some people are still doing it. Exactly, and while the regional councils are trying to get that message out, we're still seeing a persistent burning of that treated wood and, and uh, old painted timber, which is producing that arsenic and lead across New Zealand. So if you've got a wood burner or even still an open fire in your lounge, that's bad news when it comes to your indoor air quality? More the community's air quality. So that particulate from that wood, wood burner will go outside, but then it makes its way back inside. It will leak inside as well. We've shown that wood burners do leak inside, so whatever you're burning in your wood burner will leak into your lounge and then disposing of the ash if it's, it'll be heavily contaminated with copper, chrome, arsenic, lead and then putting it in your garden is another exposure route from, you know especially if you're growing vegetables, you'll be eating vegetables laced with arsenic and lead And that is exacerbated if you live in a community which where the air particulate can build up outside. So if you live in a valley, particularly a valley floor, then those particulate will, will build up a lot more than if you're in a more windier urban location. And in that windless environment, you might be just actually suffering the fact that your neighbour has a wood fire and they're the ones burning the treated timber. 
entirely. There's questions of environmental justice. That's right. So people still have to stay warm um, in their homes, uh, and maybe a wood fire is the only way that they can can do that. Uh, so in time, we, we're, we're trying to get the message out that going to cleaner forms of heat is a good thing. Thanks, Bill. That was physicist Bill Trompetta, and I was also talking with atmospheric chemist Perry Davy, and they are both with GNS Science. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao hurihuri ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. Now, let's bring our attention back to the coronavirus responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. In the science of soap, I discover why soap is such an effective way of killing the virus. Here to help me is virus expert Kurt Krauss from the University of Otago and chemist Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. First up is Kurt with a short definition of what a virus is and then Alan who explains how soap works. Oh, virus is a very intriguing package of nucleic acid that's wrapped up in a protein exterior and then in some cases surrounded in a lipid or a, or a fat envelope. Soap you might call, in sort of chemical terms, you'd call it maybe a surfactant molecule or you'd call it maybe an amphiphilic molecule. And of course, the question then becomes, right, what do those things mean? Well, you've obviously at some stage tried to wash grease off with just water and probably failed absolutely miserably. The reason being that grease is what we would call a very non-polar molecule. And by polar, we mean that it has got some sort of separation of charge. So one end of the molecule is maybe a little bit positively charged. The other end of the molecule is maybe a little bit negatively charged. A little okay. bit like a battery? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, you could think of it in, that, in those terms. Yeah, I've, never, I've never actually thought of it like that. But no, that's absolutely right. So grease is what we call non-polar. Okay, so grease doesn't have that separation of charge. It's, it's, it's a very, very nonpolar molecule. It's got an even, let's say, distribution of charge over the whole molecule. Water, on the other hand, is a really, really polar molecule. So the oxygen in a water molecule, H2O, is a little bit negatively charged. The hydrogens are a little bit positively charged. And there's kind of a rule in chemistry that like dissolves like. So polar molecules like polar molecules. So what you'll find is that molecules that are polar will dissolve quite happily in water. So something like, for example, ethanol. Okay, so we all know ethanol is the alcohol in alcohol. Uh, that dissolves nicely in water. Something like sugar, sucrose, glucose, those sorts of things, they are polar molecules as well, and they dissolve nicely in water. So non-polar molecules don't dissolve nicely in water, and that's where grease and everything comes in. So grease doesn't dissolve in water because the water doesn't like it or it doesn't like the water. So how do we get around that? We make a molecule that has got a polar bit and a non-polar bit. And molecules like this have the special name or amphiphilic or surfactants. And how does this then work? Well, if you make a molecule that's got a polar end, and a non-polar end, then the polar end really wants to be in the water, and the non-polar end really wants to be in the grease. And that's exactly what you want in a molecule to get the grease out of, let's say, your washing or something like that. So what happens is that soaps are made of these molecules that have very, very long 
carbon chains, and that makes them very nonpolar, one end of a soap molecule, very, very nonpolar. The other end of the soap molecule is very, very polar. So what happens when you put uh, soap into water and it's got some grease in it is that the nonpolar bits of the soap get into the grease, basically. They like to associate with the grease, and the polar bits of the soap molecule really want to be in the water. So they all associate with the water. And what really is going on there is that that sort of drags the grease into the water. It kind of makes the grease soluble in water. It sort of solubilizes it. And then you can just wash it away. Brilliant molecules, amazing things. So what is soap actually made from? Soap is made from essentially long chain fatty acids, we call them. Things like stearic acid, for example, is a, a molecule that's got a big, long carbon chain on it. I can't remember how many carbons right at the moment. It's about 18 or something, I think, carbon atoms. And then it's got an acidic group, a thing that we call a carboxylic acid group at the other end. And that's the polar bit. And the big, long carbon tail is the non-polar bit. So that's going to be the bit that associates with the grease. So soap, in its very, very simplest form, is what we would call the sodium salt of a fatty acid. <laughs> so a sodium and, uh, salt of a fatty acid. So sodium, yeah. I get sodium. Yep. Salt, remind me what a salt is. A salt is basically a mixture of two things. One's got a positive charge, the other's got a negative charge, like good old common salt, as we call it, sodium ions, chloride ions, so that, that we would call a salt. In the same way, a sodium salt of stearic acid would, would also be a salt because the uh, sodium ions got a positive charge, and the rest of that stearic acid, or as we would call it, stearate, part of the molecule has uh, got a negative charge. Now it turns out that coronaviruses have a particular Achilles heel when it comes to soap. Coronavirus is an RNA virus, and it doesn't have a particularly big genome, but it does have a lipid envelope. And this lipid envelope is important for maintaining its integrity, and it also is important for being able to break it down with sanitizers and soaps. So it's one of those viruses that a, a good scrubbing with soap and water does quite a good job in breaking down its composition. The virus is essentially surrounded by a ball of grease, if you want to look at it that way. And this ball, this protective ball, is made up of molecules called lipids. And again, lipids are molecules that are comprised of big, long chains of carbon atoms. So they're very, very non-polar beasties, these things. And they sort of get together, or as, as in chemistry we say, self-assemble together and, and build this sort of big fatty wall around the inner workings of the virus. And if you want to destroy a virus, you've basically got to destroy that wall. And thankfully, you can do that relatively straightforwardly by treating it with soap, because the big non-polar chains in your soap uh, are going to get in there and, uh, <laughs> for want of a better word, get intimate with those lipid molecules, and that's going to bust the whole thing apart because these lipids are beautifully arranged. You know, they're just they're just arranged really, really nicely. But if you start disrupting them, then they'll just fall apart. And then, as I say, that will expose the inner workings of the virus, and then that will render it non-viable. So, good old soap is just the best thing in this case to really deal to this virus. Thanks, Alan. That was chemist Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology, and we also heard from virus expert Kurt Krauss at the University of Otago. 
If you'd like to listen to these stories again, just head to the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Now, I recorded part of the show at home because, of course, New Zealand is in lockdown in an effort to stop the community spread of the disease COVID-19. Take care, everyone. Be kind to one another. Wash those hands diligently with soap. And if you are looking for updates and information about the disease, then listen to RNZ and check out our website. If you want to escape the disease for a while, I recommend checking out the podcast tab for lots of great podcasts. Do get in touch with questions and comments. Email me at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz and we're also on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.